I'd like to welcome everybody to the kickoff for the new year. I've got a new friend. His name is Bruce Serbone. This is Bruce right here. Um, I'm going to tell you what he's going to talk about, then I'm going to tell you a little bit about Bruce. He's going to share some of his experiences that he has had as an addiction counselor, especially when he was with the extension, how he saw men go from desperation to transformation through the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ, homelessness and hopelessness to living free from bondage and filled with hope. Bruce is a pastor. He specializes in men's issues, lots of them, such as spiritual identity, trauma, shame, leadership, passivity, pornography, blended family issues, counseling, substance abuse counseling, anger. It goes on and on. Bruce has a lot of alphabetical numbers after his name, too. So he's got a lot of training. He holds a master's in counseling from Liberty University. He has served as a senior counselor at the Extension of Marietta. He's a contract therapist for Cobb County Family Treatment Court. He is currently on staff at Church of the Apostles as the Congregational Care Pastor Counselor. He also has a private practice in Kennesaw called Endless Potential Counseling. I love that name. So I'm going to pray for Bruce and I'll welcome him to the podium. Heavenly Father, we just thank you, Lord, for bringing us back here again safely for another year, another physical year for Prodigal Child Ministries and the support group meetings that we have on Thursday night. We're just honored to have Bruce as our first speaker of this year, Lord. We just pray that you'll speak through Bruce in a mighty way where he'll leave us with words of hope, encouragement, nuggets of wisdom, Father. We just pray that his words will be your words, and it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Awesome. Thank you. Man, I am even more honored that I get to do, uh, I get to be lead off, man, for the new year. That is, that is awesome. Um, well, thank you, John and Fair, for the invitation to uh, speak to Prodigal Ministries tonight. I can, I can empathize with what you guys have done to start this ministry. Um, about 22 years ago, my wife and I, we're starting a blended family. We were going into our second marriage, and we had kids, and we wanted to know, you know, how we were going to do this so we don't make the same mistakes. And uh, we really didn't have any resources at the church that we were at or, or anything like that. So we wound up starting up a, uh, a Bible study for blended families. And, you know, everybody said, well, you know, there's not that many uh, blended couples that are in here. And we said, folks, if the, if the statistics show 50% of people are getting divorced, even Christians, there's a lot more in there than you think. And uh, so about, uh, we, we did that for almost 10 years, have had this Bible study, and, and we got blessed out of it more than anybody else. We can certainly understand how this has uh, benefited not only you, but all the other people that, that, uh, that you have helped out. And uh, it just goes to show that sometimes God pushes us to be the answer to our own challenges, doesn't he? So um, I, I, uh, I, I have a uh, private practice that, that I work in. We work with, uh, I work specialized in working with uh, uh, blended married couples and, as well as guys, but we're here really to talk about um, coping with uh, the prodigal children in our lives. And um, when we look at the parable of the prodigal son, it's an amazing look at the love that the father has for us, a love that we all share with our children and the joy that he and we experience when the prodigal family, uh, when the prodigal finally comes to his senses uh, and comes home. But what Jesus didn't talk about was what the prodigal had to go through during the time that they were separated from the love at home. 
Um, while he talks about the partying and the and the famine and the being relegated to eating the scraps from the pigs, he doesn't give detail to the emptiness that the prodigal felt. Right? He didn't talk about the friends that were only there because he was buying the drugs and when he got strung out or needed a place to crash, no one was to be found. Uh, he was too ashamed to call home or they wouldn't pick up the phone because he was just going to be asking for more money or more stuff and he had already exhausted all those avenues. The pain that he felt when he thought of going home but getting high was too important and the shame that he felt knowing that that was the truth about his life um, was even was even more harmful to him. And then he would wonder, why did he leave to begin with? And then Jesus doesn't talk about the father or the parents and, and what they were going through, right? The pain that, that they felt, um, the waiting, the wondering, the living in isolation, the fear for the child, the, the being ashamed of the community of, of what's the church going to say? What's the neighborhood going to say? What's family going to say about what's going on? Is someone watching out for them? Did they lose their phone again? Did they lose their place again? Did they get arrested or worse? Is God hearing our prayers? Why did they leave in the first place? And so I, I think perhaps that these between-the-lines thoughts are what make this parable so powerful, as well as the disease of addiction. That in between the lines of the prodigal's rebellion are the dark, deep, shameful consequences that they have to be accountable to before they can come home. And let me say that again, that they have to be accountable to, right? We can't do anything about it. You can't do anything about the prodigal. They have to come to their senses. They have to be accountable to what they're doing and the decisions that they've made before they can come home. And in between the lines of the father's emptiness or doubt, self-blame, frustration, anxiety, what did I do wrong? Why are they like this? The other ones aren't like this. What's wrong? Um, The depression, worry, hopelessness, all of which... They've had to lay aside to welcome back the lost child. And I can see in, in many of your faces that um, this is reality. This is living life right now. This is where many of you are at. Um, I've been spared this scenario with my own children, um, fortunately. Um, while they've had their issues, none of them have had the, the serious issues with, with drugs and alcohol or any kind of addiction um, they've had their individual issues, but nothing that's led to this. However, I can empathize because of my experience in what I've done and who I've met with and talked to during my time at the extension. Um, I'm not going to go through my qualifications again. John did a great job of laying those out, and I appreciate that. Um, and all those qualifications have just allowed me to take a position in places that I've been able to heal people. I was called to ministry in 2007, or ordained in 2007, called to ministry in 2002. And while I thought I was going to be a senior pastor and, a, you know, the new greatest, best mega church preacher, um, one day God just talked to me in a real clear voice. And he said, I just want you to minister to men. And that's all I've done. And I've been very blessed and honored to just 
work with men. So over these last couple decades, I've only ministered and counseled men. I do some marriage counseling, um, but I, I really don't work with women um, uh, in large scale. Um, and so part of those six years of this time that I've been uh, counseling, uh, or, or these last 10 years have been about counseling men, um, and six of those years were at the extension where I was able to get my hands really dirty in ministry. And I was able to sit and learn and empathize and sympathize and cry and laugh with guys who were at the bottom and watch the transformation, going from desperation to transformation only because they understood what their higher power was, right? And when, I don't know, you know, if, if any of you are involved in 12-step or, or have, have prodigals that are going through 12-step, but it's, it's one thing to say you have a higher power. It's another thing to actually identify who that higher power is and how that higher power is working in your life. And when, when my, from my experience, when I saw guys understand that and get that, that's when the transformation happened. That's when everything else clicked. That's when they became humble. That's when the ego got out of the way. That's when the resentments got washed away. That's when forgiveness happened, and they could understand the forgiveness that Jesus Christ was giving them. And so that's a really important point. It was a key to why I was there. I started off at the extension as uh, as a volunteer, I was telling John, I had, I had a colleague that said, hey, um, I, I, I need you to fill in to teach a class, at uh, a life study class at, at the extension. Would you fill in for me? And I said, sure, why not? I've never really been exposed to a bunch of homeless addicts, right? And that's how I thought of them. Uh, they're just a bunch of homeless addicts, right? This will be fine. I'll be in there for an hour and I'll be out. I spent two hours there that first night taught for an hour and then the other hour was just talking to these guys and I fell in love with them and I wound up saying hey can I just take over your place and I'll teach every week and I taught every week and then I decided hey can I be your chaplain and I'll volunteer you know 15-20 hours a week and that 15-20 hours a week wound up being a full-time position as not only their chaplain but a senior counselor there I wound up getting certified as an addiction counselor to go along with everything else. And it allowed me this opportunity just to dive deep into what these guys were going through and understand really what this addiction was. I had had addiction in my family. My grandfather was an alcoholic. I have, uh, you know, cousins that, that uh, uh, were heroin addicts. And, and so I had seen addiction but never really had to deal with it from a, a re- really close uh, perspective. Um, <clears throat> by the grace of God, I never became an addict. Um, but I seriously abused cocaine and alcohol as well as pornography for a good 15, 20 years. And by the grace of God, I was kicked from it. I don't know why. I mean, because there were things in my life that, that pointed directly up there's no reason why I shouldn't have been an addict. There is no reason with some of the things that I did why I shouldn't have been dead on the street at times or wrecked a car and killed somebody, right? But for by the grace of God, I wasn't. Um, but I was able to still be able to empathize with these guys. Um, my abuse ended when God was calling me to more and to be more. Um <clears throat> My attitude changed about addiction uh, 
deeply uh, when I was at the extension. Uh, my thought process and beliefs about addiction became uh, were being a choice versus a disease, and that changed as I was pursuing my addiction counseling certification. I, just, I had always thought that addiction was a choice. Addicts simply choose to use. I chose to use, and I could just stop. So I just stopped using, and that was it. But there's more to it. It is a disease. It's not a choice. It starts out with a choice. There's no doubt it starts out with a choice. But it's more than that. It becomes a disease. Um, Has anybody in here ever seen the movie Pleasure Unwoven? Heard about it? Okay. So you guys know all the things. So uh, if if you get an opportunity to watch it, it's a great great movie. It it really um, gives you a better perspective as to what's going on biophysically and neurologically in, in an addict, okay? Um, it's it's uh, done by a, a, a doctor named uh, Kevin McCauley, and he's an addict, and he wanted to get out of his addiction and used his skills and tools to, to kind of go through this whole process to figure out what was going on and why this was happening. And... Uh, um, Disease, let me, let me, I want to define disease real quick. Disease is any harmful deviation from the normal structural or functional state of an organism, generally associated with certain signs and symptoms. Does that sound familiar to any of you? That seem why this is a disease, that, that it's a, a deviation from the normal structural or functional state of an organism, that, that, the, the brain, the bodies of an addict are, are function differently, right? They function differently because things in the brain, things inside have changed. And what Macaulay talks about is this biophysical and this biochemical deviation that, that the, the frontal cortex where we have, where we make choices change, right? And that decisions are no longer made from the, the frontal cortex, cortex, but they're, they begin to be made from the pleasure center or the midbrain. And that, that part of the brain, the primal part of your brain, begins to change as they've chosen this substance, alcohol or drugs, over anything else, right? That the more that it goes into their body, the more the brain changes until it gets to a point where the brain says, okay, I don't need water, shelter, and food to survive anymore. What I need is this alcohol, excuse me, or cocaine or meth or heroin, whatever opiate. This is, excuse me, this is what I need to survive. And that's why you will see addicts always take their rent money and buy more drugs. The alcoholic will take their rent money, car payment, insurance payment, and go buy more booze. Because the brain is telling them that's what I need. It's no longer a choice that they have, right? It's, it's abnormal. It's no longer their choice. Their body, their brain is saying, this is what I need to survive, so this is what I'm going to go and get. And when we understand that, when I began to understand that, it was, it was like a light bulb went off in me. And I was like, man... They can think again. They can have a change. But this stuff has got to be out of them. It's got to get out. And so we would look to that, that 60 to 90 days, right? If, if guys could get, get clean for 60 to 90 days, 
then for the most part, it would be out of their system, right? The habit part of it would be gone. Not the smoking, because they smoked like crazy and drank coffee. That's all they did out there. We had the sanctuary, and it was, it was crazy. I even started smoking. I had quit smoking for 20-plus years, not to get off track. I had quit smoking for 20-plus years, and, and I go back to the extension in about a year and a half because I'm sitting out there ministering to these guys most of the time just as a chaplain. I started smoking again. It was crazy, absolutely crazy. But anyway, so... Um, but so, so if we could get them away from these substances in 60 to 90 days, they had a chance. The brain started working again. The body started working again. We could get them into homeostasis, and if we could get them to that leveling out in their bodies and their brains, then we could do the work. Then we could do the real work, because the real work isn't just getting them off. Right, the, the, You can be sober for 120 days. You can be sober for a year. You can be sober for five years. But if you haven't done the work as to why you were getting high to begin with, why you chose to begin to get high, then you're not doing anything. You haven't done anything. All the step work, if they went through, through a 12-step program, all that step work really didn't work. All you did is you laid off of it for a while. You kept yourself busy enough and occupied enough and in community enough where you could stay clean. But as soon as you hit a hard road, as soon as you hit a big bump, a pothole, something didn't go right in your life that you thought needed to go right in your life, you're going to default mode. You're going right back to that place inside that you've been trying to hold, you know, that you've been trying to cover up. And that's why so many relapse. So they've got to be off, but they've got to be able to address the issues, the traumas, the family of origin stuff. Everybody's got something. And folks, in my counseling practice with the guys that I work with, they don't have to be addicts to have stuff that's wrong with them in here. Right? We all have a God-sized hole. Every single one of us has a God-sized hole. And we're going to throw everything we can into that. And we're never going to get peace. And we're never going to find joy until we understand that the only thing that can go in there is Jesus Christ. And when they get that message, it's a game changer. Right? Um, This is a spiritual disease. How many of you are familiar with the big book? Okay. All right. So in the big book, if you're familiar with the big book, in the big book, it says clearly, page 64, this is a spiritual disease. Okay? Guys have to understand that. You know, we talked earlier about having that higher power. Okay? The higher power and the spiritual disease go together. If they don't recognize who their higher power is, there's no way that they can cure that spiritual disease. There's no way that they're going to be able to fill in that hole. They're just going to find something else. And I've seen, I've seen opiate addicts go to alcoholics and vice versa because they just swap one off. Well, you know what? I never had a problem drinking. You know, I, I, you know, I like to shoot a bunch of stuff into my veins, but alcohol was okay. 
right? So they'd be clean for six months. They'd be clean for a year. They'd get out of treatment. They start drinking. And now all of a sudden they're wondering how come they're back in. But this time it's because they had to detox from alcohol, right? Because they haven't taken care of that stuff. They haven't addressed the issues that are deep down that need to be taken care of. Um, we wanted to make sure, we wanted to work to got, with these guys to make sure that they got to the point that the prodigal comes to his senses. That he's, he's finally decided that he's going to get out of the pigsty and that he's going to make his way home. And that's the point that the spirit begins to take over and the brain and the choice and the choices that they make begin to change. Um, And it's at that point that the father can be skinned to see his son from a long way off. Um, And he begins to run towards him. The conversations that I would have uh, with parents at that time were were heartbreaking um, difficult. Um, we we had while well, in my time at the extension, we had two guys sneak heroin in, and two guys that OD'd from that heroin that they snuck in, and having that conversation with their parents or their wife and children was really difficult, really difficult. Because just because they're in a safe place, and, and again, these guys weren't even at that 60-day place yet. They were about 35, 45 days. They had just gone back out to work. They had a lot of money because they had just started to work. And they went into bad choices again. And they went out and, and uh, did what they did. Um, the conversations that I would have with, with, uh, with parents were uh, desperation end of the rope I can't handle him anymore she stole from me again I can't let him back to uh, back to live with us I don't want him to die we would have parents call and say well he's in jail right now I don't know what to do and we say mom dad he's in jail you know exactly where he is he's in the safest place he could be right now he's in jail he's not going to get in trouble there because we would take in a lot of uh, a lot of guys that would uh, come out of Cobb County and and they would get into the extension. Um, our answer would always be to them, "Let them go. Let them go. Let them do what they've got to do. It's hard." And, and those words would come out of my mouth. And I would say, you just got to let them go. And mom or dad would look at me and, and just go, I can't. I can't. Through the tears. I can't. But you've got to. Because a lot of times, and I'm not saying this about anybody in here, and if it's true of you, then it's true of you. If it's not, then it's not. But a lot of times, mom and dad were the problem. Mom and dad were enabling. They gave them more money. They gave them a place to stay. They gave them a car. They kept bailing them out of jail. And they were the problem. The prodigal had to come to his senses. The prodigal can't come to his senses 
if nothing's changing and he's able to keep on funding what he's doing and making the choices that he's making, it doesn't happen. It's got to be cut off. They've got to get to a situation where they are so filthy, when they are so down, when they are so bottomed out that they know that they are sick and tired of being sick and tired. Because we can't do anything. From a clinical standpoint, we can't do anything with them unless they get to that place. I have a good friend of mine that, um, now, now the extent, just a, to a point of reference, the, 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 the extension was for homeless, the two qualifications to get in where you had to be homeless and you had to be in active addiction. Those were the two things. If you're coming in from detox, that's fine. If you're coming in from jail, that's fine. As long as you didn't have, you know, you didn't have uh, any court appearances that you had to make, that, you know, charges were, weren't pending or anything like that. We didn't take insurance. We were completely funded by, by the community and, and some, some grants. But it was, and, and we were a work program. So uh, after 45 days, guys were out and they were working, but they had to come back. And we were a 9 to 12 month treatment program. So guys were in there a minimum of nine months. Obviously, they could leave whenever they wanted or they would get kicked out if they didn't do things that they needed to do. But it was a minimum of a nine month program. And we would have guys that would stay those nine months. Many of them stayed 12. Some of them wanted to stay longer than that. And some of them we allowed to stay longer than that if they were leaders in the community at the extension. And I'll talk about some of those here in a minute. I have a friend that works at some of these other treatment centers that are insurance based. And I'm not I'm 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 giving this as one example of one one guy that I, I used to work with that works in one of these treatment centers now. Because it's insurance-based, most insurance only pays for about 30 days. Ladies and gentlemen, 30 days for your prodigal is long-term detox and nothing more. That's it. They've had 30 days to allow themselves to not use. It's not really out of their system yet. They really haven't learned any skills on how to cope with life outside of, of that treatment center. And so there's not any real work that can be done. It's very difficult. Now, there, there are longer treatment centers, and there's a lot more. And, and I, 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 you know, from day one of working at the extension, my, 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 my brain, my thought process about treatment centers completely changed. And the reason I, I can't understand why there aren't more treatment centers in this area or anywhere that, that serve the the indigent population because they're the ones that need it most and the ones that 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 have dual diagnosis mental health to go along with with the uh with the addiction issues um you know we had we had 60 beds <clears throat> 60 beds at at the extension and we were 85 percent of the treatment beds in Cobb county they're building a new building they'll have 85 beds when they're done and they will still be about 90% of the treatment beds available in Cobb County. Think about that, folks. Think about that. It doesn't mean, and, and, and we're talking about that, that are, are uh, we're, we're not talking about beds that are available with, with insurance and, and that kind of thing. We're talking about that are, are funded by the community or by the, uh, by the city, state, or county. Okay. And so 
I just get off topic on that just to say that there's there's an incredible need for it, um, and uh, I, I, I certainly wish that there was that there was more out there and available, um, and perhaps there will soon. So, um, anyway, um, <clears throat> the prodigal's father knew that he was. In the end, we have to understand that that our kids are not our kids, right? They were given to us to steward, right? They were given to us as a gift to raise up. But after a while, they're making their own decisions. They're doing their own thing, and they're back into God's hand. And they're for God to deal with, not for us to deal with. And that's hard, too. That's hard to get through. That's hard to understand. But there comes a point where we just have to let them go. And the prodigal's father knew that. He let them go. He let him go because he knew he had to. Because he had to go through all this. He knew he was going to go through all this pain. And you've experienced all the pain that, that your child is going through. Or has gone through. But they have to go through it if they're going to get to the place of healing and coming back. <clears throat> Um, my guys at and, and we have the, the, there's a, a women's campus as well. I don't know if you guys are familiar. The, the men's extension men's campus is uh, on Church Street Extension, uh, over by on the other side of Cobb EMC. It's on the on the back side of of Cobb EMC, um, and uh, the women's campus is uh, off of Holiday Street, off of the square um, in Marietta. And there's 25 uh, women's beds over there. Um, but as I said earlier, our clients are homeless, they're addicted, they're bottom dwellers, they live under bridges, they come from jail, they come off the streets, they've experienced death, sometimes their own, when they've OD'd and then been narcan back to life, or they've witnessed somebody else's death. We've had guys that have come in there and they've witnessed their wives dying, OD'ing, girlfriends, best friends, brothers. They've seen them die or known them to die. This is the life that they have. This is what they know. This is what they become to know. As crazy as it is, this is what makes up the disease. Is that This is abnormal behavior. But this is normal to them. This is what they're all about. This is what they live through. And, and when, when guys don't get it, we have this thing um, where, where guys will they'll get it right they'll, they'll start to get it and understand it <clears throat> and, and they see their lives getting better they see that they've got money in their pockets they've got a job that they're holding for longer than a couple of months because they're not getting high anymore and, and life is going well they're starting to see some of their relationships begin to get rebuilt and repaired and they get scared they get scared because they still haven't done the work inside to realize that that shame that they've been dealing with isn't who they are, right? The difference between guilt and shame is that guilt says, I did something wrong. Shame says, I am something wrong, right? That this is who I am. And the enemy will keep these guys, keep these women in the past looking at their shame 
and living in their shame instead of getting them to move forward and look at who they have, what they have in front of them and what's there. That their past doesn't define what they're going to be or who they are. It's what they were at a period of time when they were sick, right? So we get these guys that have life going pretty well and they get scared because they have absolutely no idea what God has in front of them. And they're starting to get it. They're starting to understand that this higher power thing, this Jesus Christ thing is really cool. It's really good. I'm seeing my life change. I, I had guys that, uh, you know, they'd start getting on their knees and they were praying all the time and, and, and really believing that the Lord was starting to take a hold of their lives. I had one guy that was up on felony charges and was looking at 20 years, 20 years for possession, parole vi- or, or uh, probation violations and, and distribution. And all of his charges got wiped out. We don't know why, we don't know how, technicality, whatever it was, but he believed it was Jesus. And he continues to believe it, and his life has changed dramatically. But some of these guys, they still, they feel it, but they, they're too afraid. They're afraid to move ahead. They're afraid to walk through that door that says, okay, I don't know what's ahead of me, and I know it's going to be rocky, but I know that the Lord's going to be with me the whole way, and I know that it's going to be a whole lot better than what I was in. But they close the door and they say, I know what this is all about, though. I'm I'm comfortable over here. I know it's going to kill me. I know nothing's ever going to change. I'm never going to have the relationships that I want to have. But this is comfortable. And, And I know what to expect. And that's the tragedy. That's when we see those guys leave at 30, 60 days, and they go off. And a week later, they're knocking back on the door. Hey, I really screwed up. Can I get back in? Your bed's taken, sir. We've got a list this long. And then they have to try and find something else out. Hopefully they get into a sober living facility because at least they've got some of the skills that they've learned over that period of time to stay sober someplace else. Right? Um, I want to share a a couple of profiles with you of some guys that that went through this this, uh, desperation to transformation um, that, that I saw so much at the extension. And one of the reasons why I loved being there every day, because every day I saw God at work and God changing lives one way or the other. Um, the common denominator at the extension is, is that, that they're there because they're addicts and they're there because God wants them to be there. I would make sure that in every class that I, I taught at the extension, and every session that I had with a guy at the extension, that they knew that they were there because God wanted them there. There was no other reason. Why would God take you off the street and put you into a place with a bunch of other knuckleheads going through the same thing you are? You could have done that out there. And you don't have to pay a dime for it. 
you got to pay a little bit once you start working. Well, this is a free deal. They got three squares every day, and they got fed good. And we had volunteers that came in, right? I mean, we used to love the Baptist churches coming in because we knew we were getting cornbread and something heavy to eat, right? They ate good. They slept good. They were safe, and they learned, and they were loved. We loved them. They loved each other. The alumni loved them and loved each other. We had a strong alumni crew um, at the extension that would come in and just mentor these guys and walk with them and say, hey, I did this, man. I was here five years ago. I was here two years ago. I've been where you are. I know what it's like. And And the faces on these guys that light up, we had a, every Thursday, they had a power hour. And it was a meeting, AA meeting, excuse me, but it was also an opportunity for us to recognize either alumni or it was a graduation ceremony. And to see guys walk down this aisle, okay, to collect a certificate saying that they had accomplished something. For many of these guys, this was the first thing that they had ever accomplished in their lives was to walk down that aisle and get a certificate and a year chip that said, I did something. My life has changed. That in that 365 days, I went from being a homeless addict or alcoholic to having a job, having family relationships again, having a chip, and now being able to be a part of this organization to help other guys. That was a big deal. A big deal. And it happens. It can happen for your prodigals as well. It happens all the time. And not just at the extension, but those places where Jesus Christ is a major part of their program. And there's plenty of them around. So let me talk to you about about Nate. Nate came in from jail. He was another guy that had felony charges that were hanging over his head. Um, And for the first 60 days he was there, he fought the process big time. And he fought it mostly because he didn't know whether he was going back to jail or not. He wasn't in it because he was so afraid of going back to jail. And what happened was, is that there there were... certain things that happened from a legal standpoint. He was doing what he was supposed to do and his probation officer was was able to help get some of those charges reduced to where he wasn't going to have to serve any time. And then all of a sudden he kicked in with the program and he started understanding what was going on. Now Nate came from a family um, that were churchgoers. He came from a pretty good family. right? His dad drank, he said his dad drank a little bit, but nothing major. But he got hooked into the wrong people. And he knew the Lord, but he walked away from the Lord in a big way. Started dealing. Started getting involved with some cartels. I mean, he started getting messed up in some really bad stuff. And then he found himself in jail. Not for major violations. Some felony counts, but not for anything major that he could have really gotten busted for. Nate worked hard. Once he got past that, he worked hard. He fought the step work, but he finally embraced it. 
as he went through steps four and five. And for those of you who don't know, step four and five are a big deal. It's when they start digging deep into the resentments that they have in life, right? The traumas that are still there. Who they still have hurt feelings for. Why every time a person, place, or thing triggers them, they get that feeling inside that they got to go back out. They really started digging deep into that. And that's where, where Nate got to. He started digging deep into that. So our counseling sessions became more about digging deep into that stuff, dealing with his sexual trauma, dealing with, with uh, uh, his abandonment issues that he had. And most of these guys have abandonment issues, dad issues, mom issues, whatever it is. But there's um, uh, family of origin issues that they've had. We've all got something, folks. It doesn't necessarily have to be mom or dad issues. It doesn't necessarily have to be porn it, it, you know, or, or sexual abuse, whatever it is. They've got something that they're feeling that they're covering up that they haven't dealt with. And every time they feel it again, they want to pick up and go back out. Doesn't mean it's your fault. It's not your fault. They're making decisions, Right? We are all broken. Can we all admit that? That we all have brokenness, right? And unfortunately, as much as we don't want to pass on our brokenness to our kids, we do. I would like to think that the issues that my, parent, that my kids have are because of their biological mother. <laughs> but I know that's not true. There's something that I said or did or how I treated them at some point that has influenced them or, or, or hurt them in some way. And there's nothing I can do about that. I didn't know it. You didn't know it. We've had a lot of guys that come in there where their parents have been using. They were using with their parents. Their parents were dealing. Highly dysfunctional. Alcoholics, highly dysfunctional, you know, um, um, uh, uh, angry alcoholics that are that are in the family. How do you do it? You live to survive, so you don't learn any coping skills. The only coping skill that they learn is how to survive. And I survive by drinking or taking some other substance that are going to allow me to quit thinking about it. At about eight months, Nate came into my office and he said, Chap, he said, uh, I got baptized at church today, or on Sunday. This was on a Monday. I got baptized at church on Sunday. I rededicated myself to the Lord. He's changed my life so much. He had a relationship with his dad again. He had a relationship with his daughter again that he hadn't talked to in 10 years. He was able to get back together with his wife. and They hadn't been together in four years. Three of those years he was in jail. He found the Lord again. And the Lord had been working in him through this period of time to get him to that place. And now he's got his own business that he's running. He just bought a house out in Cartersville. He's fixing up the basement so his brother can move in. All these things happened because he got it. He cleaned it out. 
And he allowed the Lord to get back inside of him, to change him. And that's what they need. He got out of the pigsty. He was tired of it. It was time for him to get out. He wanted to find out what the Father had for him. John um, John was a guy, he was two hours out of detox, Cobb County detox, when he walked into the extension, and he was hurting. Man, he was hurting. And he came in with this, you know, he had a coat on. I mean, all he had was what he had on, and he had a... Um, said he had a, a backpack or he had a backpack with him but he had stuff at his parents house that he wanted to go get and he came in and man I could just see it in his eyes he did not want to be there and he was about 35 years old the longest sober time he had had was six months he started drinking when he was 15 so over 20 years the longest time he was sober was six months. And that's because he had to be. And this guy comes in, and I just knew he wasn't going to stay. I, he, was, he was a runner. We're calling him a runner, right? They would come in, they would do an interview, and if they didn't like what they heard, they'd say, I got to go grab a smoke. They'd go outside, and we wouldn't see him again. And I knew John had to be there. And John said, well, you know, yeah, I want to come in, but um, I need to go to my parents' house because i got to go get my stuff. And I said, no, your parents can bring your stuff to you. You're staying. you got to stay. And he did. And that first three days that he was there were really, really hard for him, really hard. There were guys around him 24-7 keeping him there because he wanted to go because it was so hard for him. John came from a wealthy family. Money wasn't an issue for him. Had a well-to-do, married into a well-to-do family in, uh, you know, uh, the coastal Carolinas and and, uh, had a daughter that he had absolutely no relationship with and had just, his life was a mess. And John was formally trained at Cordon Bleu, at, um, uh, um, what do you call it? Uh, Cordon Bleu, the, the, uh, uh, the, 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 yeah, the Culinary Institute. Yeah. So I'm sorry why I couldn't get that out. The Culinary Institute. John could cook, man. And John, once he started getting his head together, cooked for the whole house just about every night. He would make the menu. Whatever he wanted to make, we would go buy the food and he would cook for all 60 guys. Every night, except when we had volunteers that came in on a regular basis. And he cooked well. And that helped him. It helped him get, get grounded again. It helped him feel like he was useful again. It helped him realize that what he was, or what people said he was, or what he thought he was, what his shame was telling him, what the enemy was telling him he was, was not really what he was. This is what he was. That he was something more than that. That he had skills. He had something to offer. John's still battling with who his higher power is. But he knows 
He, know, he believes in God. He's gone from an, an agnostic atheist to believing in God, but he's still trying to put that Jesus Christ part of it together because of the, the Catholic upbringing that he had. Okay. But he's doing great now. He's got a girlfriend. He's about ready to get married. He's still cooking, not professionally. He's doing all kinds of different photography now, but he's got a new life. A new life. He was transformed out of desperation. He came off the streets out of detox, about ready to die, and he made it because he was open to it. John, again, was one of those guys that was sick and tired of being in the pigsty and wanting to see what the Father had for him. I could go on with uh, a whole lot more. Um, there were over 200 guys, 225 guys that went through the extension in the six years that I was there. 60% of them made it through. Completed nine months to 12 months because they got it, because they understood it. Because we have up, they had up all over the walls at the extension, this is a God place. God transforms. And they understood that, and they got it. And they understood who their higher power was. They're living life to its fullest and beyond their expectations. <clears throat> but each one had to find a safe place away from the evil that the enemy was saying was safe, but really wasn't. And once safe, they could begin to uncover. They could take off the armor and begin to learn who they truly are and why they were here. Many, were, many are and were successful. Others, as we talked about earlier, sabotaged themselves. Um, believing that they didn't deserve a better life or were afraid of what was next and relapse was soon to follow. The prodigal has to come to his senses. They have to be sick and tired of being sick and tired to be able to pull themselves out of the pigsty and be able to say, my father has more. Just, just what his servants get would satisfy me. Just what whatever whatever my family, my parents will give to me at this point, I will take. As long as I can feel that love. As long as I can feel accepted. As long as I can feel like there's more for me. They have to find themselves in God and not as anything else. When they can do that, they'll come home and the banquet can begin. In verse 24 of, of Luke 15, it says, For this son of mine, Father says, For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. I hope this has helped you folks. Any questions? Bruce, yes, sir. That was great the way you explained that. Thank you. I've always wrestled for years <clears throat> and I visit these treatment programs all around the country and we hear men and women say, oh yeah, I've got a higher power. 
And uh, I remember I asked one guy, well, what is your higher power? He said, a tree. And he was serious. And I didn't want to judge him, but how do you take a person that acknowledges, yeah, there's a higher power, but I don't know what it is, what his name is, what it looks like. How do you get him from, yeah, there's something bigger than me, but I can't connect it with Jesus yet. How do you do that? Yeah, that's a great question. <clears throat> and really, John, in, in the in the time, you know, and, and again, the time that I've been I've spent in in addiction counseling is is far less than what what many have been in. But in in my experience, what I've seen is that it, it really is about experience. They've got to have an experience to understand what the higher power is, and and what you know. The, the the 12 step program is is really a spiritual program okay it is based on on spiritual biblical precepts that were established by the oxford men if you're familiar with them that were in england and they took these and translated them over into into the aa program um you know a lot of a lot of treatment programs now are implementing um other excuse me other kinds of programs um, smart recovery, um, which is a, a Buddhist-based um, recovery program. So even that's about, you know, Buddhism. If you're familiar with Buddhism, in a nutshell, Buddhism is, it, Buddhism is just about relying on self and, and helping yourself get to become a higher power, right? And so that really doesn't accomplish anything, okay? Um, but but um, to your point again, it, it's I, I truly believe that that it's it, they have to experience it um, for themselves. Some of them get it, and some of them don't. You know, I've I've got you know uh, a, a kid that I'm working with through family treatment court right now who's who's really battling that with that right now. You know, he understands that that he has a higher power, but he doesn't want to define what that higher power is. But he knows that it's something greater than what he is. So just the fact that he understands that part, we've got, you know, there's, there's some room in there for us to be able to work, hopefully to, to get him to, uh, you know, to get him to a, a different place where it becomes something um, uh, more definable for him. Um, that answer the question? Yeah, I guess what you're saying is you really, we can't convict him of the truth. We can just present it lovingly. Uh, respectfully and truth yep. and pray that you'll make that connection absolutely hey folks we, we can't go out you know we can't go out and evangelize right and and beat people over the head with with scripture to get them to you know to get them to, to convert right i mean all we can do is just live out our lives and and hopefully they witness what we're living out and they're going to want to know why why are you like that what's going on and i think it's the same way if they've if they're in a community where there are people that have recognized who and what their higher power is they're living their lives a completely different way they're living their life in recovery a very different way than people that don't recognize who and what their higher power is anybody else Yes, ma'am. My son is um, in rehab right now. He's what? I'm sorry? He's in rehab. Okay. Good Landing Recovery. Oh, he's at Good Landing? Yes. Great place. Um, okay. I'm very incredibly thankful. Um, he, I don't know if you're familiar with how they work, but they get passes and mm-hmm. it kind of builds up one day and then the whole mm-hmm. weekend. Mm-hmm. Um, 
as I was sitting here listening, I realized I haven't even read the steps for Celebrate Recovery. I think they allow them to choose. Um, and my son said that he is um, feels more comfortable with the Celebrate Recovery. Okay, great. So it great. occurred to me, I can't believe I haven't even read them, but the steps. Um, on his last pass, he did not relapse, but he... Um, did something that was not good. Um, it wasn't drugs or. Um, he broke a rule. Well, uh, he lied to us. Okay. His okay. Um, and I think that is another addiction, which may be um, pornography or sexual addiction. I don't know. Okay. But through the steps of the Celebrate Recovery, he's supposed to deal with that trauma and. And whatever, all the addictions. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I just need to trust that and hope that he shares and that he sees God in that. And, yeah. Um, not try and find a sexual addiction counselor for him. No, yeah. I mean, we don't want to go from one addiction to another, and, and sometimes that happens. Um, celebrate Recovery is AA on steroids from a spiritual standpoint, right? So that's a good thing. Good Landing is a great place. We had them in uh, at Church of the Apostles about two weeks ago, and uh, we, we've been, you know, I think Randy's actually sent like two or three people over there already, and and uh, they're a great, great program. Um you know, again, there there are great programs out there, really great programs out there. What the per, you know, what whatever your child is going to get out of it is going to be based on whatever they puts into it, right? If if they're not willing to put anything into it, it's not going to help, right? I mean, we would get guys that would come in and they'd be with there with mom and dad, and and I would look at them and and say, dude, do you even want to be here? And he'd look at me and go, no. And I'd say, see you guys. I mean, that's how quick the conversation would be. Because if they weren't willing to do it for themselves, it wasn't going to work. It doesn't matter. They've got to be want to do it for themselves. Well, right? he will be 60 days sober um, Sunday. Great. So they have the service the following Friday that we're going to go to. Great. And he'll get, but what I'm saying is he's... You know he's he has followed in that respect, and he's proud of himself. And they give him a test every when they come back from the past. Yep. Mm-hmm. But I'm just saying this other, and I'm not altogether sure it's addiction, but okay, that will that should all be addressed. Yeah, and the the steps of this all version recovery. It it should. So AA's got these principles, these character principles, and honesty is number one. Right. So if you're not being honest about number one with yourself, if you're not being honest with the people around you, right, and your you know your your caseworkers and things like that, then what's the point, right? right. I mean that's that's the big thing that they've so got to be honest. Stop the drinking and the drugs, but still not be honest. Yeah, I mean, it, so so a lot of this, you know, it, it it boils also boils down to humility, right? Right. So so even even those that that have no addiction for them to come to know the Lord like like the guy I work with a bunch of bonehead guys I love them dearly but guys were boneheads we, we just are because we're full of ego 
right? And it takes a whole lot for us to get humble, right? And, and we cannot come to the Lord until we get humble, until we say, Lord, this is yours. My will is not my will anymore. My, your will is, is my will. Whatever you want for me, I've got, that's where we have to get. And for people in addiction, they have got to get to that place where they say, I'm done. My way has been an abject failure. I'm going to do it this way. And, and the treatment center is the beginning of that, helping them to get to that place where they can start making the right choices. Because then it becomes a cycle, right? They make one good choice, then they make another good choice, and they make another good choice, and it encourages them, it empowers them, and they keep on moving down, down the road the, the right way, right? You're welcome. I hope he does well. Is he, done, is he just doing 60 days, or is he going to stay longer? Okay, great. Yes. Good. Is he going to do any kind of aftercare? I don't know yet. Okay. So um, for those of you who, who, who have um, folks in, in treatment or are getting them in treatment, um, a lot of treatment centers will put together some kind of aftercare plan, right? But they don't necessarily have any kind of aftercare, right? So they'll provide resources. I've got cards up here. Okay, and if you want to take one, and if you've got a loved one that needs to do aftercare, they can get a hold of me, or you can get a hold of me, come in, we can talk, whatever. Um, it's a free resource at Church of the Apostles, which you would want to take advantage of instead of coming out to Kennesaw where, you know, I'll charge you. <laughs> can you define aftercare? What, what yeah, so we, we talked a little bit about this um, earlier. You know, you can you can go through a treatment program for 60, 90, 120, a year long, okay? And while you're in that, in that contained bubble, basically, I used to call it a bubble, you guys are in a bubble, the real work happens when you get outside of here, right? And so um, in, that, in that 60 or 90 days, you only start tapping into some of the work that really needs to be done if they've got therapists that are there, right? There are some treatment facilities that don't have therapists. They have caseworkers in there, but they don't really have therapists. So a good after-care program includes continuing to go to meetings, continuing to keep in contact with a sponsor, continuing to grow a network, okay? Because the opposite of addiction is not sobriety, okay? The opposite of addiction is community, Okay? And the more community that the addicts have, the better it is for them. Because there's people watching out for them. There's accountability. Okay? And they're being accountable to somebody else. Okay? Um, and then the other part of that is therapy, continued therapy, to continue to work on those things that are inside that, that they keep on going back to. Right? That default. I call it default. Okay? You're welcome. Anybody else? Yes, ma'am. So is the extension of faith-based facility or is it a community-funded facility? So it was established as a faith-based program. Okay, When I was there, it was a faith-based program. But because of, and, and I would say this, that, that God is still working there. I truly believe it. Okay, But because of, um, because of the funding, the different kinds of funding that they get now, okay, um, they have to follow certain guidelines. So it's not a faith-based program as like a good landing is 
or Bridges of Hope or Blake House or uh, Blue Mountain Reco- or uh, um, Blue Ridge Recovery. Okay, um, you know, so there it's it's just not as much as it was. Okay, but there's still good faith-based people that are that are there. Okay. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. Unfortunately, I mean that's that's really the the only way is to just call. So you know we can we've um, I don't know do, do you guys have like a resource list? You guys have a resource list, right? Yeah, I saw your resource list. So you know they've got a resource list. Um, we've got a resource list, probably just about the same. And and really, it's just calling. It really is. Um, yeah, talk, you're going to find a lot of that talking to the addict. Okay. Cause mom and dad can sit there and talk until they're blue in the face saying, Hey, they need this, they need that. And this is the way they've been and so on and so forth. But like I said, if, if they're not willing to go get treatment, they're not going to do it. Right. I mean, there's a lot of kids. There's not, not just kids, but there's a lot of people that are wasting mom and dad's money and insurance money and treatment facilities that all they do is sit there and sit around for 30 days and they don't do anything because disengage because they know they're going to be out in 30 to 60 days and they're going to go back to what they were doing because they're not ready yet. But don't you see that as a gap where you have someone that has mental illness they don't have the wherewithal to even take care yeah, of their daily life? Yeah, and, and that's, yeah. Now, are there, are there substance issues there too? Yeah, were, were were the were they? Is it he or she? Was she diagnosed with with a mental health issue before the substance issues? You don't know. See, and that's the problem. We don't know. You know, that's the thing that we had to fight with. You know, was you know we would have we would have people that would come in on medication. They'd get out of detox and they would come in with all this medication, and we'd have, and we'd be like, you can't take this medication because we don't know whether you really have a mental health issue. Right or whether they just needed to calm you down because you were completely methed out or you know just got over a nail OD right and so sometimes it's difficult to tell whether whether the mental health issue was always there and that was the reason for you know the the addiction or whether the addiction now has caused the mental health issue right and with a lot of meth addicts there's there's mental health health issues that are created. Um, because of the meth use, unfortunately. I mean, there's a lot of delusion and, and all kinds of stuff. Now, a lot of that can dissipate over the years as, they, uh, you know, as the years go by and they're, and they're not using anymore. So, you know, for you, it's going to be, you know, trying to find a, a dual diagnosis um, uh, facility that can, that can handle both, right? And that means that they're going to have some kind of uh, medical staff on site as well. Sir. Bruce, I, I know you. Uh, we've all heard of the extension. Can you talk a little bit about what does Must Ministries do? I know they're very big around here. Yeah. The same kind of things as Yeah. Do? So, so what Must Ministries does not do anything from an addiction or a counseling standpoint. 
right, or or even mental health standpoint. Now, uh, they do have a um, they do have a healthcare clinic that they've opened up, but Must Ministries pr- primarily takes care of uh, homeless families, right? Uh, if y'all are familiar with the Elizabeth Inn, um, you know they took in a lot of homeless people, a lot of homeless guys. You know, we we would send a lot of guys to um, to uh, Elizabeth Inn Must Ministries and have them sit, you know, go in there for thirty days just to see whether they really wanted treatment or whether they were just looking for a bed, right? And so they take care of homeless people, give them shelter. They now have a big uh, a bigger facility that. Uh, takes in families, women that have been battered and abused. They take them in with their families. So they're primarily taking care. They have food bank, provide food at different uh, different food banks that they have in the areas. So they don't do anything from a, a treatment standpoint, though. Anybody else? Thank you so much, folks. Really appreciate it. Thank you.